Our task is, as I said, to open God's word and to see what it says and to make it plain to everybody and not to invent anything of our own. And so as we open up God's word and we look at what it has to say and we kind of wring it and get all the truth out of it we can, we're gonna see this one central truth emerging from this passage and here's what it is. God ordains all your circumstances to bring him glory by proclaiming his message. God ordains all your circumstances for you to bring him glory by proclaiming his message. If you're, if you're taking notes, write that down. We're gonna explain that over the next about 38, 39 minutes. God ordains all your circumstances for you to bring him glory by proclaiming his message. So last week, Pastor Chris is explaining from Acts 6 the introduction of Stephen, this sort of proto-deacon. Right? And we saw that he was uh, doing all kinds of, of deed ministry, helping out widows and serving the needs of the church, and simultaneously a word ministry. We saw many people got saved. They responded in faith to the gospel, both religious people and secular people. And this week, we get a deep dive on the life of Stephen. And we see him continuing, both in deed ministry, doing good things, and in word ministry and proclaiming the gospel. But unlike last week, where many got saved, this week we see nobody get saved, and a ton of people respond in this murderous rage and kill him. And so, just like Stephen knew, I want you to know that God ordained all your circumstances for you to bring him glory by proclaiming his message. Now, we use that word ordain, and maybe you want to adjust, what exactly does that mean? That's, that's kind of a churchy word, like what, what, God ordains all our circumstances. What, what exactly does that mean? I want you to think of the phrase, I'll see to it, right? Somebody asks you to do something, maybe your boss tells you to do something, you say, hey, I'll see to it. It means, I'll take care of it. What that means then is that God sees to it. He makes sure all your circumstances are for his glory and give you an opportunity to proclaim his message, this doesn't mean, what it doesn't mean, hear that? It, it doesn't mean that you're just a robot and God's sort of pushing buttons and you're not responsible for the good or the bad choices you make. No, it's not that. You are still responsible for the good and for the bad decisions you make. But it does mean that nothing in your life, absolutely nothing, is random or accidental or by chance. We might use those words conversationally, but we know at the core of the matter, a, a random event is something that doesn't exist. It's an oxymoron. God is using all of it and he's behind it. And Stephen's story gives us this truth in a living color. We're gonna explore that. Stephen knew that whatever circumstances God brought, they were an opportunity for him to proclaim the gospel. And I'm gonna show that to you from the passage this morning. But before we, we get into the story of it, let me just give you two sort of undergirding passages that sort of teach this truth that Stephen's story, the narrative, illustrates for us. All right, first one is this, Acts 17, 26, 27, and it's on the screen. We read this. And he, that's God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, and catch this, here it is, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Even where you live, the boundaries of your dwelling are determined by God for the purpose of others and yourself finding God. 1 Peter 2.9 would say it this way, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? 
so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So God says, Acts 17, your boundaries are determined by God so that people would find and know God. First Peter 2, I've saved you. Why? So that you would proclaim this message. So whatever situation Stephen found himself in, he always found a road to talk about Jesus because he knew that God had sovereignly ordained his circumstances to put him in that location to glorify God by proclaiming the gospel. Can I just reinforce what this means for you personally? It means that if you're a student, the others in your class are not random. That's not happening by chance. It means if you're a teacher, the kids in your class and their parents are not random. They're not there by chance. It means that the parents you see at soccer practice or at your kids' gymnastics or dance lessons, none of those are random or by accident or by chance. They are there so that you would stay on message and proclaim the gospel. It means that your neighbors and the man waiting on your table today at lunch and the woman you see at the pickleball court, none of them are there randomly or by chance or by accident. They are there with a divine appointment so that you would proclaim the gospel to them. Guys, I gotta be honest. As I was preparing this week, like these are truths that I knew in my head and in many ways in my heart, I'd sort of forgotten some of them. So I had to repent. I'm like, Lord, like you've got people all around me that you want me to tell about you and you've divinely ordained that they would be there, and I'm just like carrying on like it's, like it's random, and it's not. So, so my, my prayer, honestly, is that God led me to repent as I was studying this week, is that his kindness would lead you to repent to this morning as well and see the opportunities he's put in front of you. You see, thinking about every relationship coming back to the gospel, coming back to Jesus, it might feel a little bit odd, but it really shouldn't. Because most of us are fanatics about one sort of celebrity or another, and we're used to connecting all of life back to them. Like, maybe you, you're used to saying something like this. You say, oh, that reminds me of what Michael Scott always says. Or, oh, there's actually a Taylor Swift song about that. Or, oh, Tucker, Tucker was just talking about this last night. You see, we're fanatics of all these things, and we connect life right back to it. And it's interesting, the, the Latin word for fanatic is the same root where we get the word temple. In other words, the things I'm a fanatic of, it's like I'm a temple worshiper of. And because Jesus is infinitely more worthy of worship, didn't we just think that? Is he worthy, is he worthy? He is. Then it's, it's so right and so good and so beautiful that we'd see how every aspect of life is a road for us to have a conversation about Jesus with whoever God puts in our path. So what exactly is it about Stephen's story? How do we see his story showing us how to stay on message with the gospel? He gives us sort of a framework for thinking about this, how I stay on message and proclaim the gospel. But, but his story gives more than a framework. It also gives us great hope. Because for many of us, another evangelism talk, just it feels like a shaming session over maybe what we haven't done, the people we haven't told. It feels like we're, we're exhausted, we don't have any more energy, and then the treadmill gets turned up to 12 and it just flings us off the back without any hope. So let me just tell you, if that's you this morning, God sees you, and on the burning hot summer day of guilt over who you haven't told, he's offering you in Stephen's story just a cold glass of lemonade. Like, oh, that's so good, that is what my soul needed. Not just knowing what to do, but the fuel by which I can do it. So there's a three-part outline this morning. It's pretty simple. We want to stay on message, number one, 
Stay on message while doing good. Number two, stay on message while under criticism. And number three, stay on message while, forgot my last point, think about it, think about it, think about it, while facing death. Stay on message while doing good. Stay on message while under criticism. Stay on message while facing death. Let's start with the first one. Stay on message while doing good. Look back at your copy of the scriptures because that's where all the authority lies. Verse eight of chapter six. And Stephen, full of grace and power, catch it, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. He's doing great wonders and signs. So last week, he's doing good by serving the widows. And this week, he continues doing good with all sorts of wonders and signs. We don't get exactly what they are, but presumably, he's doing some sort of miraculous work through the power of the Holy Spirit. He's, he's taking the, the lame and allowing them to walk. He's restoring sight to the blind. He's, he's doing incredible works. And Stephen knows, and you should know, that the good works that you do are not random. They are prepared by God in eternity past for you to do. Ephesians 2.10, check it out on the screen. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's good works all around you that God has prepared for you to walk in. Open your eyes and see them, they're right there. But it's not just good works for the sake of good works, it's because good works provide an opportunity for us to proclaim the gospel. See, look at Acts 6.10. What's Stephen doing here? It says, but they, the people who were around you, didn't like him, could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. See, Stephen wasn't just doing good works. He's doing good works and proclaiming the gospel at the same time. Deed ministry, word ministry, all of it taking the gospel forward at the exact same time. Now, that word spirit, take a look there, verse 10. In my copy of the Bible, it's a capital S, other translations might have a lowercase s. Is it the Holy Spirit, or is it just a, a general, this was the spirit you know, that, that Peter had, his personality, or, or what have you? The, in the, the original, the Greek, it gives the idea of it being the Holy Spirit. So it's a spirit-empowered wisdom, a spirit-infused wisdom that Peter is speaking with, all right? And so you see in his life that it's critical to maintain both the deed ministry and the word ministry. This is how the gospel goes forward, John Piper is helpfully commented. He says it this way. He says, Christians care about all suffering, but especially eternal suffering. So wherever we look out and we see there's suffering, there's something we can do about it, we do. That's why wherever you see Christian missions going forward, you see things like, like hospitals and schools and orphanages being established. But they're not established just for the sake of education or healthcare or, or whatever else, Right? No, it's as Christian missions goes forward because the the suffering that needs to be ended is eternal suffering most of all. So we likewise should see the good deeds that God has prepared for us to do, not just as a chance to do good, but also to proclaim God's message. And this is is the task of the whole church, not just the pastors. We talk about Parkside being an aircraft carrier, not a battleship. A battleship, you've got a few big guns. Maybe you think the pastors and the missionaries. And if everybody comes on the ship and you, you serve in your own way and you give your money and you help out this way or that way and you get the big guns firing the way they're supposed to, then that's a good battleship and it's gonna win the war. Might be helpful in some context, but that's not the way God has devised the church. Ephesians 4.12, pastors exist to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So an aircraft carrier is a better analogy where you say, hey, on Sunday you're gonna come and each member of the church is like its own fighter jet. And you're gonna land on the aircraft carrier. And when you come here, you're gonna get three things. 
you're gonna get fuel, you're gonna get ammunition, and you're gonna get healing from any injuries you've incurred during the week. Fuel, ammo, healing. Come in and then be launched out again, and you're equipped to do the work of the ministry while you're here, and you go out on mission. This is the task of the whole church. And what happens is we always get distracted, we regularly get distracted with other things that are good to do, but not essential to do. Becky Pippert and her wonderful book on evangelism, Stay Salt. I would highly commend this to you. I'll quote from it in a second. It's in the bookstore. I read it earlier this year, and I loved it for at least two reasons. Number one, it didn't beat me down and fill me with guilt about evangelism. Like a lot of books do that. This one didn't. But it gave me some really practical tips on how I can integrate the gospel of Jesus into everyday conversations. I hope you'll pick it up back there. But here's what she says in this book. She says, There will always be something easier and more popular to do than share the gospel. But there will never be anything more necessary to do than to share the gospel. Our witness is not an optional extra in our faith, something for the extroverts, the enthusiastic, the professionals, or the missionaries to get on with. I wonder if the verbal aspect of evangelism has to be relearned as an active choice and a sacrificial commitment. Man, I wonder if that's you this morning. Like other, other good things to be doing, but you just need to relearn the act of verbal evangelism as a commitment I'm gonna make to the Lord and ask for his help to carry it out. And so as pastors, what we seek to do is we seek to prioritize ministries that will mobilize you to do both deed ministry and word ministry, good deeds and proclaim the gospel as you go. And so maybe you're compelled to say, I wanna feed the hungry around here. And so you get involved in the storehouse, and there's the storehouse cafe where you don't just give people food for the week, but actually serve them a hot meal and sit and have a conversation and tell them about Jesus. Or maybe you want to bless the poor, and so there's the community Christmas project. Or say, hey, here's a need. Go meet the need and go take somebody shopping with you and tell them about Jesus as you go. Or maybe you think, hey, education is a real need. And so Bethesda Christian schools exist and you can come and you can volunteer and help as, as a reading mentor or tutor and get to know kids and their families and tell them about Jesus while you meet a tangible need. Maybe you just look out and you see there's chronic isolation and depression, especially among young moms who are at home with their kids and pandemic isn't helping any of it. And you say, man, I'm just gonna organize a play date right out at Northwest Community Park, wherever it is, I'm turned around a bit. He said, I'm not just going to organize a play date just for the sake of going down slides and swinging on swings, but I'm going to stay on message while doing good. I'm going to get to know people at the park and tell them about Jesus, both at the same time. So as you think about proclaiming the gospel in your daily life, it's important that we notice Stephen's example. Look back at Acts 6.10. What is it that they could not withstand? It's the wisdom and the spirit or you might say the wisdom provided by the spirit with which he was speaking. Spirit-filled wisdom. You see, Stephen didn't lack for truth, but it's his winsomeness that got him noted, that got noticed. It's his winsomeness. And the building block to be winsome in proclaiming the gospel is this. It's just a genuine interest in others. Just a genuine interest in others. And we'll, and we'll see this recurring throughout Stephen, this, this winsomeness, is it's just a genuine interest in others. You might say, Justin, how exactly do I do this? I know a lot of theology. I've been hearing Bible teaching for a while in my life. How do I do this? Well, the first thing I would say is, is just get started. 
It's so easy to think, like, I don't know what to say, I don't know how to say, I don't know what question to ask, I might sound like a jerk, I don't know, it's paralysis by analysis, and you do nothing. Which cars are the easiest to steer? The moving ones, right? Just take a first step and engage somebody in a conversation. But beyond that, I would encourage you to come back tonight to Christ and cultural conversations. Here's a forum dedicated to saying, how can I represent Christ well in conversations I'm having throughout the week? Right now, notice this series, Church on Mission. It doesn't say random Christians on mission. It says church on mission. So we come together tonight and say, hey, we are a church on mission, and we need each other to be on mission, and there's wisdom that each of you have that can help me be on mission, and vice versa, and we all work together in this way. I already noted Becky Pippert's book, Stay Salt. Maybe that's a, an action point. I'm going to pick this up in the bookstore. Maybe, maybe you don't want to read a whole book. There's a three-page article I put back there for you. I've got you covered. There's no way out of this one. The title is The Stand That Saved My Soul, about a pastor friend of mine who was a student at Virginia Tech, and somebody lovingly, winsomely proclaimed the gospel to him and saved him out of his pagan life. He came to know Christ and is testifying to him all the time. I don't know what your action point is, but don't sit still under the preaching of God's word. Get out and do something. We stay on message while doing good. That's number one. Number two, we'll see in Stephen that we stay on message while under criticism. Now, you see the, the, the verses there, 611 through 753. Pretty long one, right? We're not gonna read all that. Bruce already did. Thank you, Bruce. Um, and we'll, we'll actually do a deep dive on Stephen's speech next week. So I'm just, I'm excited to get into that. Let me just give you a, a quick tease. Maybe you've heard that the Bible is all about rules and regulations, or maybe for the Old Testament is like a God of wrath and the New Testament's the God of grace. I don't be like New Testament Jesus, not Old Testament angry, cranky God. Like Stephen's speech refutes all of that. And it shows how the whole story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, the whole thing is the message of grace. That the Bible is about God and what he's done for you. It's not about you and what you need to do for God. And so I hope you'll come back next week. I hope you'll bring somebody with you. Because we're going to see from his speech how the whole Old Testament points to Jesus and the message of grace that he brings. But that's next week, not this week. Stay on message while under criticism. We're just going to take a high-level overview of what Stephen said and how he responded, all right? So look back at Acts 6, verse 11. Let's see the nature of the criticism here. Verse 11, then they secretly instigated men. Pause. What's the criticism? It's instigated secretly. It's underhanded. Right, verse 13, look back at it. And they set up false witnesses. Okay, so you've got the religious leaders who are secretly instigating men and setting up false witnesses. Why are they doing this? Back to last week. Stephen, proto-deacon, proclaiming the gospel. Priests get saved. Lots of followers get saved. So you've got the religious leaders who are losing followers to these new Christians. They don't like that. Nobody likes losing followers. In first century, first century Judaism or on TikTok today, nobody likes losing followers. And so they do something about it, right? And so they, they pull all the strings they can to sway public opinion and turn the crowds against Stephen, now, as we've been going through, you've noticed in Acts 4, 21, we see the leaders couldn't take action because the people supported the apostles. And then in 5, 26, you see the same thing. The religious leaders want to take action, but they can't because the people support the apostles. And so they say, guys, we gotta, we gotta up our game here. 
we got to start doing some heavy-duty censorship. we got to get in control of the media here and turn public opinion against these guys. That starts to sound familiar a little bit. It should. It's nothing new under the sun. So 612, we look back and we see what's happened. They've stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. In other words, they intentionally misrepresent Stephen's views in order to generate a hot take. The more things change, the more they stay the same, right? You want people to follow you on TikTok or watch your YouTube channel or listen to your podcast, what should you do? Find a hot take, create a common enemy, generate rage, and then people will listen, right? It's exactly what happens. And these religious leaders were just doing the exact same thing. They were using all their cultural power to coerce the masses instead of actually dealing with the content of Stephen's argument. Let's make up a lie, a false narrative, and let that, let's let that run with it. I, I, I was on Twitter the other day, and I saw this, this quote from a, uh, or a tweet from uh, Robert P. George, a, a Princeton professor, and that's a little bit small, but I'll do my best with it. He says, the way the game is now played, when people encounter a view they don't like or agree with, instead of trying to defeat it with reasons, evidence, and arguments, they try to defame and stigmatize those holding the view in the hope of making them and others afraid to express it. Well, Dr. George, you're right, that is happening right now, but the problem with what you're saying is you say the way the game is now played. Dr. George, there's nothing new under the sun. Solomon said that thousands of years ago in Ecclesiastes 1. And so this should be, listen to me, this should be incredibly stabilizing and grounding for us. Because when we look out at the world and we see what Dr. George notes, it's like, oh my goodness, what's going on? Can I just tell you, this has been happening for thousands of years and God has been faithfully and sovereignly working through all of it the entire time, bringing people to faith through the proclamation of his message. And he's going to keep doing it. All right? So Stephen sits back. And it's, it's kind of an awkward situation if you think about it. He's standing here. And he knows the charges are trumped up and false. And the religious leaders know they're trumped up false charges. And the accusers themselves, the guys that were instigated, know they're trumped up and false. Everybody's kind of sitting around like in this little huddle. Like, yeah, we all know this is a kind of a kangaroo court. And the high priest looks over and is like, Stephen, is this so? And they're kind of looking at each other like, are you for real right now? Like, imagine being in that spot. It would be kind of awkward. So Stephen's options. What are his options here? We could get angry, slam his fist down. I told you that's not what I said about Moses and the temple and the law and the Old Testament and all that business. That's not what I said. Would he be justified in doing, taking that response? Sure. Or... Option two, he could call out the unjust system and the accusers and just launch into how hypocritical they are. And would that be true? Yeah, it would. But what does Stephen do with the criticism? He says, hmm, God must have sovereignly ordained this criticism so that I would have a chance to talk about Jesus. So, so there's other options that are available to me, but what my eyes are on is how can I get back to Jesus? And that's what he does. He explains, hey, here's how the whole story is about Jesus. And we'll explain, like I said, all that next week of how he does that specifically. But note a couple of things in his speech. Acts 7-2. How does he open the speech? The very first three words. He says, brothers and fathers. 
Now, I don't know about you, but if there's all these guys stirring up false witnesses in a murderous rage and they're getting ready to kill me, I just don't think I would lead with brothers and fathers. Right? Why does he do that? Because he's being winsome. It's a grace-filled approach where he's not so much interested in winning the argument as he has seeing the person come to faith. He would go on through the speech and 10 times, go back and read it this week, 10 times he's gonna use the phrase, our fathers, our fathers did this, our fathers did that. He's, he's demonstrating throughout the whole thing a deep knowledge of their national history. One guy said it this way, he said, Stephen is building bridges of grace that can handle the weight of the truth. So even under criticism, he's being incredibly intentional and being winsome showing a genuine interest in others in their national history of how he can proclaim Jesus. I heard about one of our, uh, one of our church members just a couple of weeks ago, something along these lines. They had some, some colleagues, some coworkers that held some views that they thought were, were frankly pretty crazy. Like, I, I don't see that, I don't get that at all, it doesn't make any sense to me. And so what, what this person did is they said, hey, could you just send me an article or a resource that sort of explains this view that you have. I'd like to understand it a little better, and maybe we could sit down and talk about it. That's all I'm talking about here, guys. Here's an opportunity to engage somebody, to be winsome, to be genuinely interested in them, to learn more about them, and to set up an opportunity where we could sit down together again and explain, hey, here's what you're seeing, but can I show you how this is actually a road to talk about Jesus? That's what Stephen's doing, and that's what you ought to do. His, his speech was winsome, but it wasn't just winsome. Right? It's not just feel goods and care about people and, you know, I, I love you, love you, love you. I'm filled with grace, but no truth. No, he was deeply scriptural too. Right? This isn't Stephen just getting up saying, well, I feel this way or let me speak my truth or anything like that. He says, no, here's what the Bible actually says. And Parks, I pray that we would be a people marked by convictional courage to stand up and talk to our friends and say, here's what the Bible actually says. It takes courage. And going through it, Stephen highlights the sovereignty of God throughout all history. He highlights how Abraham had been promised a child. And at 90 years old with no child, it seemed like all hope was lost. And yet God was sovereignly working through it and he would provide. He tracks the story of, of Joseph who gets taken captive and carried off and thrown in prison. And yet God was sovereignly working, changing the heart of the most powerful leader of the day to bring Joseph into his court and give him all kinds of authority. So think about it this way. I'm just give you a modern day example. Think of your favorite preacher. Okay, whoever that might be. Right, John MacArthur, John Piper, Tim Keller, Mark Dever, Kevin DeYoung. Like just think of your favorite one, okay? And imagine they get dragged off to prison for preaching the gospel. And the next time you see a President Biden press conference, after seeing all these you know, press releases coming out about so-and-so's in jail, you hear President Biden say, guys, I just wanna to welcome to the stage, insert favorite preacher. I know we got this Fauci character over here, but what I really found is this guy's got all the wisdom in the world and he's actually gonna start running the, the country so I can go hang out with my grandkids more. They're like, what? That's craziness. Yeah, that's what God did with Pharaoh and Joseph. And, and Stephen is recounting, it's like, look guys, God is sovereign over all of it. Like, stay on message, proclaim the gospel when you're being criticized because God is in it and working and he's in control. 
And as he's reminding them of that, I can't help but think Stephen is recounting these things, not because others need to hear it, but because he knows his own soul needs to hear it. And I wonder if today you just don't need to recount the sovereignty of God throughout all history because yet others need to hear it. But man, my own soul, and I think your own soul needs to hear it too. Stephen was winsome, convictional, scriptural. He spoke to the heart of the matter. Right? He knew this, the front they put about Moses and the temple and the law, that was just a front. It wasn't actually the heart of the matter. Look at what Stephen says. I'm gonna skip to the end of his speech here. Acts 7.51. Look back at the, your copy of the scriptures. And just imagine the courage and the conviction required by Stephen to deliver this message. He says, you stiff-necked, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels, and you did not keep it. An arrogant resistance of the Holy Spirit was the core issue. He knew that. But he took a winsome way to get there, and he didn't back off from the convictional realities either. It's like he said, guys, your dad and your daddy's dad and his daddy and his daddy's daddy, all they've been doing is killing the prophets. And you guys arrived and you got to kill God himself. You're just late to the family party. It's a family reunion of killing God's people and you guys finally arrived. Doesn't that make you feel warm and fuzzy on the inside? He's not afraid. He's not afraid at all. He says, this is what the scriptures say and I'm gonna speak with conviction on it. So getting really practical here, thinking about the criticism you might be facing and how do I stay on message like Stephen did with a winsome, scriptural, convictional message? How do I do that? Recognize first off where we started this morning, that God ordains all your circumstances for you to bring him glory by proclaiming his message. That means that God isn't surprised by the criticism you're facing. More than that, he understands it entirely. Because nobody has faced the unjust criticism that Jesus did. So in that moment, when you feel isolated by it and you're cut off from the rest of the group and nobody is facing criticism like you are right now, there's at least one person who gets it, who's had it worse than you and who's coming alongside with an arm around you or more, more appropriately picking you up and carrying you and saying, hey, I got you. I've walked this road. I know what it's like and I'm with you. And not only is God not surprised by it, and not only does he fully understand, he actually has a purpose in it. Remember we said last week, Stephen's preaching the gospel, lots of people get saved. This week, Stephen's preaching the gospel, nobody gets saved, he gets killed. So you might say, Stephen, you were convictional, but you got yourself killed, this was stupid, what are you doing, man? But in two weeks, you know what we're gonna see? that the greatest missionary movement in the history of the world is launched out of Jerusalem because of Stephen's bold proclamation, presumably because the onlookers heard the message and they were compelled by grace to go out and tell people about Jesus. And of course you don't see why God is allowing the things, the suffering, the criticism in your life at the moment. Stephen didn't see it. And every now and again, God just kind of pulls the curtain back and lets you see a little bit. He lets Stephen see a few priests get saved. But the, the vast reach of what God was doing through Stephen's suffering, he didn't see on this side of eternity. And we probably won't see it either. So stay faithful. Stay on message while under criticism. 
Understand that God is more interested in your availability than your ability. Your ability is not what's getting the work done. He's saying, I'm just looking for somebody who will be available and I'll use them. I'll do the work. I am able, says God. That's how you keep going. That's number two. Number three, stay on message while facing death. Stay on message while facing death. We just read how things end, or Bruce did rather. Stephen's facing death, and again he comes with a winsome approach. His goal is to win the onlookers. So as as these people get angry, they grind their teeth, they rush at him, they stone him, what does Peter, or Peter, Stephen, what does Stephen not do? He doesn't scream judgment at them. He doesn't say, you Satan worshipers, you're gonna burn in hell for this. Was it true that they probably stand, stood, before, stood condemned before God and were going to burn in hell? But probably true. But that's not what he led with. Wouldn't have been wrong per se to say that. But he's saying, I'm looking for a winsome way to win somebody to Christ. And so he commits himself to Christ, innocent, saying to everybody around that Christ is my hope in life and death. And if I'm alive to Christ, great. And if I'm dead, then Christ is glorified showing everybody around that Jesus is better than even life. What an apologetic. And he says, Lord, don't forgive them. Don't hold their sins against them. Showing I've been transformed by grace. God's kindness led me to repentance. And I hope that my kindness will lead others to repentance as well. It's like Stephen says, I'm about to die. And even as I die, let my death point others to Christ. It's like he's living out what Paul wrote in Philippians 1. It says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. What's the fruitful labor? Proclaiming the gospel in all circumstances. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. It's more necessary because there's people in my life right now that need to know about Jesus and God has ordained my circumstances so that I could be here to tell them. It's a distinctively Christian view of death that Stephen gives us here. And our culture tells us all sorts of other anti-Christian views about death. Just the other day, I was in the house listening to Spotify and Kenny Rogers' famous song, uh, The Gambler, came on. Maybe you know that one. It's not really about gambling so much. It's kind of general life wisdom. And, and here's one of the lines. It says, every hand's a winner and every hand's a loser. Sometimes things go well, sometimes they don't. Every hand's a winner and every hand's a loser. And the best that we can hope for is to die in our sleep. Isn't that the message our culture tells us? Yeah, sometimes it's up, sometimes it's down. Just hope whenever you die, it's a pain-free death. Guys, the Bible stands against that. It says, your death can be worth something, it can accomplish something that's not the best you can hope for. You can hope for way more. Death isn't random. COVID isn't random. Your days are numbered. You have an appointment with death, decreed by God, and you can't be late to it. You might think, Justin, that that preaches all right, but is it in the Bible? I'm glad you asked. You shouldn't take my word for it. Let me show you where it's at in the Bible. Job 14, 5. A person's days are determined. You, God, have decreed the number of his months and have set limits that he cannot exceed. You can't be late. Psalm 139, 16. Your eyes saw 
Put that on the screen. Psalm 139, 16. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Before one of them came to be, God knew all of them. Every single day. So here's the great news, guys. Near death, people are often open to conversations about the gospel. Whether it be your death, and people will listen to you, or their own death, and they're considering what's going on here, and there's an opportunity. So let me remind you that God ordains all your circumstances, even your death, to bring himself glory by you proclaiming his message. And Stephen's death, it was a pretty specific form of persecution, right? And I don't know if or when that sort of thing might come to America. We could debate that and be an interesting conversation. But here's what I do know. I do know this. Sooner or later, we're all going to die. And you can call it COVID, or you can call it cancer, or you can call it anything else. But it's coming, And you can look around, you can see, guys, this has been a hard year for our church and for the globe as a whole, right? And we can can wring our hands about the culture wars and everything that's going on, or we can get busy telling people about Jesus, staying on message when we're facing death. And when we talk a lot about the culture this and the culture that, and can I just, can I be honest with you about where I see the culture infiltrating the church in terrible ways, Here's what it is. It's that postmodernism is the air that we breathe. It's the stream that we swim in, and we don't even realize it. Generally said, postmodernism is this. There's no overarching story to reality. There's no unifying truth. It's just my truth is here, your truth is here, somebody else's truth is over there. It's not connected. You just, you do you, man. And of course, the majority of you are going to look around and say, like, oh, yeah, like, there's, there is objective truth. It's not my truth, your truth. Like, there is truth and there is error. And it's, like, you're there up here. But I don't wonder in our hearts, as we think about proclaiming the gospel, we think, gosh, what would somebody think of me? Will they be offended if I tell them about their eternal destiny? That Jesus is the only way to be saved from the flames of hell? the only way to receive forgiveness of sins? Man, of course that's scary to say. But you don't, it's not, it's not that you lack self-esteem like the culture might say. And it's not that you actually not lack knowledge of what to say. It's that you often just fear man more than God. And you hear the cultural voices in your head louder than you hear the voice of God in the scriptures in your heart. And thinking about our death and the brevity of life is one of the best ways to reorient ourselves around that which really matters. And I wonder if today you wouldn't just take 60 seconds, only one minute, and consider your death. And I think as you do that, there will be people that God brings to mind that are in your life right now. You say, man, that person needs to know Jesus. And I only got so long, so I need to get busy staying on message and telling them. And start to wrap this up here. I wonder if you don't hear this message and just generally think it kind of sounds overwhelming. Like, like Justin, it's hard enough in my busy schedule to, to see others around me and do good deeds and, and meet the needs, much less thinking about proclaiming Jesus while I do it. Or, or maybe think, Justin, the criticism I'm facing from my boss 
or from my spouse or from my adult kids, it's, it's honestly, it's crushing. And most of the time, I can't even cope with that, much less consider how I'm supposed to use that as an opportunity to proclaim Jesus. Or, or you say, Justin, death has crushed our family this year. Because I've sat with many of you and preached the funerals. I know the pain. And you're overwhelmed by it. You say, Justin, I, I don't hardly have the strength to get out of bed most days. How in the world can I have the spiritual strength to go tell somebody about Jesus? Maybe, maybe that's how you feel when you, you hear a message like this one. Can I just remind you? Can I remind you some really good news? The guys we read about in the Bible, Stephen and, and Paul and Peter and others, it's not like they were some kind of spiritual superhero. These are just average dudes with fears and anxieties like you have, but great confidence in the word of God. How do I know that? Good question. Let me show you in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 2, on the screen. Here's what Paul says. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. Pause. Who feels that way when they try to tell somebody about Jesus? I feel weak, great fear, and I am literally trembling. Okay, that makes you like Paul. Let's keep going. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. Don't have wise words, don't have persuasive words. Bingo, you've checked the second box. You're like Paul. But with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Friends, if you have the Holy Spirit inside you and the gospel to proclaim and the story of your conversion to share, you've got everything you need. You've got everything you need. And we need to recognize that God always works through weakness. Right, just think back with me. King David, greatest king in the history of Israel, he's so insignificant as a shepherd boy that his own dad overlooked him. Like when your own dad says you're too insignificant to be used by God, that's pretty freaking insignificant. And yet God worked through him mightily. The Samaritan woman, John 4, one of the first Christian converts, probably the first Christian evangelist, what's she known for? Her five husbands and her present live-in boyfriend. Like you wanna know anything about hookup, shack-up, breakup? You go talk to her, and God says, bingo. That's the woman I want to use. I'll speak through weakness. I don't need these guys who think they're able. They're so full of themselves. The Apostle Peter, the rock upon which Christ would build his church, had massive anger issues. He got so angry, he tried to chop a dude's head off. And you thought he was angry then. You get so angry, you want to chop his head off, and you miss and get his ear. That'll really tick you off. And God says, bingo. That's the guy I'll God always works through weakness. So quit trusting in your own strength. It's a form of Phariseeism and works righteousness. To say, I don't have it in me. Of course you don't have it in you. Who do you think you are? You got the Holy Spirit in you. So you may, you may look at this and you say, okay, okay. I'm trying, Justin. I, I see that God ordains all my circumstances for me to bring him glory by proclaiming his message. And I see that God is more interested in my availability than my ability. And I see that God loves to use weak people. But I still feel super weak and I don't feel transformed. So how does his grace work through me? It's one of our last things. Will you look back at Acts 6, the very first thing 
the very first thing Bruce read, I actually gotta turn back two pages, that's a pretty long way back. Acts 6, 8. And Stephen, full of, what's it say? Grace. And Stephen, full of grace and power. Stephen's a regular dude who was just filled up with the grace of God, and the grace that filled him produced power in him. See, grace doesn't just take away your sins, it changes you. Your salvation is by grace, but the whole Christian life is by grace. The gospel isn't just the the diving board into Christianity. It's the entire pool where Christian maturity is learning to swim deeper in the gospel, and that's what carries me forward. What's the old hymn say? "'Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace shall lead me home." Guys, trying to proclaim the gospel without full reliance on God's grace is like telling your toddler to climb up a descending escalator. Like, don't try that, okay? The, the toddler part. But if you do, please video it and send it to me. <laughs> but maybe that's how your evangelistic efforts feel. Like, I start to step up, and the thing starts to go, and I flip down, and then I, I try again, and I'm a little top-heavy because toddler's heads are enormous, and I, I fall over sideways, and I bash my head. And you're like, man, I just feel bruised and battered and beat up from falling down this escalator And I just feel really guilty. Like, I'm not good at evangelism. Like, I know God is telling me to do all this stuff, but I'm not doing it. And you feel the guilt of it. Look, I promise you Stephen failed plenty. I promise you he did. But what marked his life was not him claiming how good or bad he did, but how full of grace he was. God's grace overcomes my weakness. And that was his anthem. It's what Paul would say in Galatians 2.20. He would say, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And I love this second part. He says, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Guys, Jesus came and he lived and died not only to forgive your sins, but to send you out. His grace is a little bit like a tornado never draws you in without sending you out. And of course, both are scary. And tornadoes, when they send you out, it's chaotic and it's destructive and it's random. But God's grace, the way it sends you out is intentional and purposeful and life-giving. Like, amen, I get to be part of this. The message is always and only Jesus. You preach it first to your heart and then to others. Perhaps this morning, the message your heart needs to hear first is the message of grace. That you're not clinging to your own righteousness of of what you've done or what you haven't done, of how able or how unable you are. You just need to hear that my grace is sufficient to you, for you. And maybe God's also bringing somebody to your mind because they need this message of grace. And Justin, I'm sending you to reach them. Or maybe it's both your heart and their heart. But as we go to communion here in a minute, stick with me right here, don't put your Bibles away, don't grab the communion cups. Remember Jesus' sacrifice. His sacrifice that paid for your past sins, your present sins, your future sins, and his sacrifice that also enables you to go out in his power. And confess your sins and be honest to him. Because you know that that transparency and confession of sin 
It doesn't get you kicked out of the club. It's the only requirement to come to him. So you can be honest with him because his grace covers it all. And then ask for his grace because you know that any effort to reform yourself apart from the grace of Jesus Christ is a complete waste of time. So quit screwing around with that and just ask him for his grace to change you.